Thank you, Jelaine. As you can see, there's a lot of stuff that happens here at Circle. So when you partner with us, when you commit, when you give, when you participate, it's a great way to see all the things that God is do, doing in our midst, in our community. And if you're new with us, or maybe you've been here for a while, but you're kind of finding yourself in a rhythm that you just attend, love to encourage you guys to connect. There's just so many ways that God is unpacking and opening opportunities for us to partner with him to make a change in this world. Um, Holy Spirit Weekend is one of these opportunities, but there's just so many things, as you saw Jelaine describe and explain, and we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to get to know you, and we'd love to plug you into a circle group because that's where growth and church really happens. It's in those circle groups where you have people that get to know you, that know you by name, that get to know things that are going on in your life. They get to pray with you, talk with you, discuss all the things that we're learning on Sunday mornings, unpack all that stuff. So it's just a great atmosphere of creating a family and a community. So if you're not in Circle Group, please make sure you fill out a connection card and let us know because we'd love to plug you and we'd love to have you connected. So we are in the middle of a series called Plugged In. We've been looking at what it looks like to plug into the source of life. How do we connect to God? And we've been unpacking that the best way to do it is prayer. And sometimes we've had different understandings of what prayer is or what prayer is really about. But we've been learning that prayer is really accessing God, plugging into him, using simple words, understanding who God is, allows us to connect with him, and knowing he's a personal and loving God allows us to know that he wants to hear from us and he wants to connect with us. So if you've missed any of our messages, you can connect with us uh, online. We have podcasts. We're starting to do video now too, so it's a kind of new cool thing for us. So you can even watch us. Uh, I tried watching myself the other day. It was, it was painful. And I thought, man... I hope it's not painful for other people who watch me, but it was painful to hear your own voice and to hear your own actions up front. But anyways, it's a great new way. We're trying to engage our communities, so check it out that way. And uh, if you're here with us, if you can take out your programs, I guess, and uh, pull out your message notes, you can collect electronically through your version as well. And as I said, in the last few weeks, we've been looking at this plug that we've been really unpacking this idea of prayer. Who do we speak with? What are these inner dialogues that we have? And what does Jesus say about prayer? These are all the things we kind of really unpacked. And last week I said your understanding of who God is will shape everything else in your life. Knowing who God is, or maybe not even believing God, will shape everything that you have in your life. For us, for those of us that call ourselves Christian, our entire worldview is based on the reality of who God is. The uniqueness of Christian faith, the Christian understanding of God's dynamic character is this idea of the Trinity, this triunity of God. And this is a really complex term, and it's hard to unpack it sometimes, but there's this idea that God is both the Father, He's the God, He's the Creator, He's the Holy Spirit, He's this movement in us and around us, this energy in some ways uh, that allows things to happen and to work, and He's, of course, the Son who comes in, in, comes in Jesus into this world. And in the center of this trinity, in the center of this triunity, is the idea of love. This is the foremost important and centered characteristic of who God is. Everything else flows out of the idea that he is love. It is part of us being made in his image that we have this DNA that love is important, that love is significant. And we learn this from God because he's a triunity whose center core is love. Some years ago now, um, my grandma passed away from dementia. Now, dementia is an awful disease. It takes away all of who you are. It takes away your personality, it takes away your mind, it takes away your memories, all the things that you cherish and all the things that really make you, you. Before her illness began, I remember when I would visit grandma, and I don't know if you have the same experience, so maybe if you don't, you can kind of learn from my experience, but maybe some of you have had this experience with a loved one. When I would visit my grandma, I would see this first and foremost right off the face, before she said any words, before she did anything, 
I would see this expression of complete love. And I can't put it into words, but you just knew it. There's this happiness, this joy, this, this radiance that would fill her face when you would come into her presence. There was no questions whether she loved me or cared for me. There was no questions like, oh man, is grandma in a good mood? There was this always expectancy of grandma knows me and loves me and I'm safe in this place. I'm at home with her. And I remember when the disease began, began to sink in and slowly the memories began to fade and slowly the look that she would give began to fade as well and be replaced by confusion or fear or frustration. And slowly by slow, by slow by slow, step by step, I began to lose grandma to this illness. It was hard to watch my mom care for my grandma to see her change so dramatically. And there was something in that moment of this disease that remind, reminded me that the way we were created and made, we're, we were made for intimacy. And in that moment of this disease, taking that intimacy away, there was a pain and sorrow and loss that was felt. Everything that was designed in us to have that intimacy and love was there, and the disease entered and pulled it away. Nothing is heavier in life, I think, than losing the intimacy of a loved one. And going through an illness or an experience where someone you love and cared for begins to change, or maybe leaves, or maybe dies. Something in us screams out that this can't be the way, that we weren't made for this, that we have to have eternity, this can't be right. And yet we are surrounded by loss of intimacy and loved ones all the time. And I believe this DNA that's been imprinted in us, that's been stamped in us from the beginning, is made by God. That we were made for intimacy by an intimate God. But how do we connect to this intimate God when we don't feel it? How do we connect to Him? Maybe if we've had a moment, maybe those of us have been walking in, uh, in faith with God and we have those high moments of, of mountains and we feel victorious and when God feels so close, then we enter the valleys of life and it feels like God is now far away. And how do we understand him when we don't feel that intimate with him? How do we engage with him in prayer when we feel like he's not even there? I mean, nothing dampens our enthusiasm for prayer like fear that there's not going to be a response, that maybe somebody out there doesn't actually hear us. And maybe this idea that maybe we're just being silly talking to ourselves and there's nobody even listening to us. Worries like that nag at us as we attempt to plug into the source of life, as we attempt to pray. They eat at our convictions. Does it even matter that we pray? So when we're talking to God, we likewise need to have more than a belief that God dwells somewhere out there, that he's actually near us. We must know that he can be near and lend an ear to us. We want the very presence of God. I think if we're honest with this intimacy that we encounter with people in a significant way, builds in us that we need to have a God who can actually hear us and be personal to us and be close to us. And to understand this longing intimacy and to understand where is God in the midst of all this, I think we need to understand what we're actually doing, how we're actually approaching God in our prayer. And so God, who is actually very vast and complex, if we say he's created everything, and yet when we learn about Jesus, we see this intimate side of him. So how do we even encounter God who seems to be so complex? Well, I think one of the things that we need to understand first and foremost as we begin to pray to him, as we begin to plug in, is this multidimensional side of God. Now, that's a really hard concept to unpack, so I'm going to try my best to kind of unpack it a little bit today. But what I mean is that there's more than just one dimension to God. God is first three in one. 
So he's triune, as I talked about a little bit earlier. He's three people. They make this core intimacy of one. Constantly, some, someone said it's like a, it's like a spiritual dan- dance that happens between them. There's a sharing of a meal. There's this triunity. Then there's God who's holy. He's other than this creation. He's outside of the seen and unseen. He's beyond us. There's this holiness, which really just means he's set apart. He's so vast and bigger than us that we can't even have words adequate to describe him. And God is infinite, which is a huge, complex um, understanding to even grasp. Like if he's infinite, that means he's outside of our time frame. He's not linear. He's above things, and then he's within things. So what do we do, even if we come to understanding that God is multidimensional? What do we, in, how do we, okay, so God is multidimensional. How do we encounter him then? So I think what God does is he makes it simpler for us to understand how to pray and how to connect with him by revealing his multidimensional aspects to us through two things. One of the things is creation. Obviously, when we look around, we see the God who created this complex and multidimensional world. We see that, uh, that and we, like, there's things that work that we don't even understand how they work, and the more we uh, open layers in science and in our understanding, the more we're amazed how things function together, and there's this complexity to creation. And Apostle Paul, when he's writing to a letter to Romans, he writes this verse in chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his internal power and divine nature, having clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So even 2,000 years ago, Paul is wrestling with this idea of this eternal power and divine nature that's unseen, and he says it's all revealed in creation. And though even we may not know Jesus, we may not know God for who he is, we can see his multidimensional work around us in creation, in its complexity. We can learn a lot about who God is simply by being in creation, by being in nature, because it is amazing and complex and common all at once. And there's this astounding variety to it. And because we see this complexity, yet we see this organization and all this order in nature. All things seem to work together and align. This is why we even use math as one of our universal languages. And we know historically that people like Copernicus and Galileo, these scientists, these astronomers, were propelled and pushed to understand our universe because of their faith, not despite of it. The Christian worldview inspired them and focused them to make sense of the world and creation. That it could not be just chaotic because the God that they worshipped was the God of order. And therefore, therefore, his creation had to make sense and had to have order to it. And so we learn a lot about God through nature. And that's why Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, he says, you're without excuse, even if you didn't know Jesus, even if you don't understand him as God of the Jewish people, you ought to have some understanding of who he is by looking at nature and looking at the complexity and order and beauty of it. And so God reveals his multidimensional parts of himself to us through that. And we're still trying to catch up with this. There's so much creativity and order and variety and complexity that we see each day. And so we know that God is vast and complex. He creates all the things that we see around us. He sustains all the things around us. He makes all things function and come into order. And yet there's this intimacy about him. And we see that because all the things in creation seem to push towards intimacy. All his creatures that he has made into existence seem to push and experience intimacy. And so there's another way that we have to understand God's multidimensional. Yes, he's vast, he's, he's great, he's eternal, he's, there's the unseen natures of him. And it's difficult for us to wrap our heads around this sometimes. It is for me anyways. But we need to see something else beyond that. 
And that the, uh, the, the God that we worship reveals himself in this triunity. And though he reveals himself in creation, he also reveals himself in incarnation. So that's a really hard word, incarnation, but it really means that God then takes all of who he is, all of his complexity, and becomes a person. And this is an incredible part of the Christian faith. The God who is everywhere, who is everything, who is the sustainer of life, his eternal power, divine nature, all at the same time, his, all his multidimensionalism that works through, our, through everything, space and time, then limits himself into the person of Jesus. Partly why God does this is to help us to understand that he's not far removed. If our only understanding of God is that he's creator of all things and he's out there and sustaining things and he's somehow making everything in the universe work, it makes God seem quite distant. And right from the beginning of time, God tells us that he wants to partner with us and be one with us, be cooperator with us, co-creator with us. And therefore, he knows he can't just be in that dimension. That he has to actually enter this world. He actually has to function with us and become one of us. We have a God who so deeply cares for us that he wants to make a real contact. A person-to-person reality. And I believe this is especially important in our time to emphasize this real contact, this real conversation that Jesus lived out to remind us that we have a real conversation with God when we pray. Some spiritual circles say that only, only truly important thing is maybe cultivating your soul or your spirit. But spirituality in that vein is very vague and hard to grasp to. And that's why God works past these multidimensions. That's why he enters the incarnational life through Jesus Christ. And if we would just focus on the spirit side of things, we miss the importance of the material world. And we have a God who says both material and a spiritual matter. Sitting on the edge of Grand Canyon or going to Banff should propel us to go, holy cow, nature is amazing. It's amazing what God has created. But it's only a reflection of who God is. It is only part of his design. The incarnation, the personhood of Jesus reminds us of a true relationship, a true person-to-person relationship that we can have and the access we have to him through prayer. Prayer requires another person. Prayer requires a personal God. I think if we only saw God in the, in the way of his bigness and largeness, his all-powerfulness, his all-presence, it'd be hard to connect to him. It would be hard to even think that he can understand us. But is this his personal side? Is this personal God? Is this limiting of himself, this kind of love and act of intimacy that truly teaches us who God is? The act of prayer then becomes an opportunity to partner with personal God. It reminds us that prayer is not a lonely act. That it's not something we do by ourselves. It is a relational, personal, meaningful time. I think for us Westerners, we don't always do relationships well because they're seldom the highest priority. I mean, we seek relationships, we want relationships, we want connections, but we don't often do them well because they're not the highest priority in our everyday. We are often more concerned with mastering our environment or improving ourselves. I mean, self-improvement is a worthy goal and it's important, but problems arise when we treat relationships as a mere means to an end. We often size up people according to their usefulness to us, and we tend to treat God in the same way. 
well, I need God now because things are going bad. Or, I wish I had that, maybe God, now I need your attention. But what God, the vastness and complexity of God, limited into a person of Jesus, reminds us is that God actually cares for our everyday moment. And he actually wants that deep relationship with us. Perhaps more than ever, the reason the story of Jesus resonates with so many people, even those who may reject religion or Christianity, Jesus resonates with us because it calls our attention not just to the cosmic giant, he's certainly that, but to the idea that he's able to be our personal friend, to the idea that we have a God who actually cares and wants to engage in our life. It is no wonder that the Christian story as recorded in the Bible, rarely re resorts to cool philosophical language. Our connection to God is often in the Bible messy prayers, very raw and angry or happy. All, all emotions are encompassed in the scriptures when they talk about our connection to God. The ordinary everybody, everybody's who populate the Bible passages talk about God with names that come with like, things like shepherd and husband mother, or counselor, or redeemer, and father. These sides of these multi-dimensions of God ring to, of conviction that someone out there actually cares for us. So much so that he's willing to limit himself and be one of us. And for God's part, he calls and reminds us to call, us, to call him Abba. Now Abba is just, it's a, it's a, root, it's a basic root word in Aramaic language. It means daddy. Sometimes we say father, but it's actually deeper connection in that there's this, there's this deep, deep, intimate longing in that word. And I don't know, for some of you, for some of you here, sometimes hearing the, the word father may bring up bad memories or bad relationships. But what God is talking about is the perfect parent relationship and the most intimate relationship. And that's why he says use the word daddy instead of just father. I remember when my son Noah was very little, he had this really, when he was very little, he had this really cute voice. And when I would come home, he'd always go, Daddy! It was incredibly adorable. So I actually taped it once, and then I would have it on my phone, and I would listen to it when I would travel or, or be away from home. Because it just brought this deep joy to me to hear his voice, to call out to me in this intimate way. I didn't have to wonder if he loved me. His calling out, Daddy, connected me in a personal way to him. And this closeness of a parent and child is described in these words that God says, I love you this much that I will limit myself in the person of Jesus and I will be your daddy. I'll be your perfect parent who loves you deeply. And so we see the multidimensions of God in creation, sure. We see his mystery at work around us. We see the sustaining and working and all the things coming together. But it is in the person of Jesus Christ that we see his true intimacy for us, his willingness to love us. And our prayers connect him to this intimate God who says, I will not be far removed. I will not be outside of these things. I will not just look down on you and say, what are you guys all doing messing this world up? But I will enter into this mess. I will, I will walk with you and connect with you in the deepest possible way by becoming Jesus. But it doesn't end there. How we know the deep intimacy of Jesus is that he doesn't just come and live a perfect life and just goes away. The intimacy of Jesus is seen through the cross. The cross is the greatest act of intimacy. You see it on our stage here. Some of us wear it on our necks, or we see it on ambulances and other places, on churches, on shirts. 
But the act of the cross, to think about God in, in this multidimensional way, that he's so grand and big and vast and complex, and then limits himself and he's willing to go on this torture beam to die and to suffer, to break down any barriers so that we could come before him, that we can experience his love, that we can have connection with him like we could never before have imagined. It's a good place to start to think about the thanksgiving and the intimacy of God. Sometimes we forget the cross, it kind of sits in the background or we see it in other places and becomes a decoration. But it's the highest act of intimacy of God who says, I will limit myself into this person and then I will suffer. I will enter this mess so that your mess can be forgiven. So that all the brokenness, all the disease, all the evil, all the things that you experience in this world can be made right through the work of the cross. That's how deeply God loves me and how costly evil and sin and brokenness is in this world. The cross reminds us that we're deeply loved and forgiven because God takes that on himself. When we see the cross, we ought to be reminded of the intimate love that God has for us. Do you know how much something is worth? It's how much somebody's willing to pay for it, right? I mean, that's why Kijiji is so frustrating because I'll often po put stuff on Kijiji and I'm like, this is a really cool thing I have. This is worth so much. Okay, I'll give people a deal. I'll go a little bit cheaper just so it sells. Man, this is a great thing. And the person calls you and they're like, this is way overpriced. It's worth nothing. <laughs> I'll give you this much for it. And it's like, ah, oh, dude, this is worth a lot. But I don't decide that. A worth of something is dictated by how much somebody's willing to pay for it. The cross is a reminder of what you're worth. The cross is a reminder of what I'm worth. If God is really this vast and complex, and if God is really willing to become Jesus, and if God is really willing to go on the cross to suffer so that any barrier that I may have built for myself to separate myself from God or other people, and God is willing to put his own life on the line for me and for you, that speaks highly of God's intimacy and your worth, my worth. No one loves us more than our Heavenly Father. This is the beauty and the complexity of God, is that He loves us so deeply, He wants to engage with us, and He says, you're worth that much. Apostle Paul, when he writes to another church, Apostle Paul was, was a pretty crazy guy, but he began, to, when he encountered Jesus in a special way, he began to write all these letters to all these churches as he began to teach them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And he writes this letter to Corinth in chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. What Paul is teaching the early church and us today is the night before Jesus was betrayed, his love and intimacy of God for us, knowing that he's going to be abandoned, knowing that he's going to be killed, knowing that he's going to take the weight of the world on himself, decides to have a meal. Decide, we call it communion, which literally just means sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts, intimate feelings, intimate memories. And Jesus institutes this meal as a language of covenant, of a promise of saying, 
My love for you is so deep that this is what I'm going to do. So please do this in remembrance of me. Because whenever you do this, you will enter into that communion. You'll be re you will remember of a personal God who loves you so much. It's a reciprocal commitment. It's a reciprocal covenant. It's a reciprocal promise. This promise that Jesus institutes on the night he was betrayed was a promise and a reminder that his love for us is so deep and intimate that he will die for the brokenness of the world. And because Jesus has done this, we now know that we are part of this intimate family. So when we gather like this together, we gather here for different reasons. Some of us are curious. Some of us are devoted. Some of us are searching. Some of us are journeying through our spiritual life. When we gather like this, we become a family that says we care for one another because God loves us. And we belong to each other in God's family. Communion says not only does God love me more than I will ever understand, and that's the cross, but we belong to each other. And that's why we take communion. In Corinth, there was three big problems, though, when the church gathered. Sometimes we think about all the problems we create in this world, and we think they're all new. But right from the start of the early church, Paul addresses the Corinthians, and he says, look, you're gathering together, but the problem is you're all fighting. There's conflict amongst you. So you're coming into this community as a family. You're saying you want to forgive. You're saying you understand God's greatness and love for us, but you're actually fighting amongst yourselves. You actually have disagreements and hate for one another. You need to resolve this. You need to understand this. You need to connect. You need to solve this problem. And secondly, he says, you're selfish. You're coming in for yourself. You're eating too fast. You're eating for yourself. You're not even caring for other people. This is a communal table. This is open table. This is for all of us to be together as a family. And third thing, he says, there's hierarchy amongst you. Like some of those that are more well-off are being treated better. Those that are poor are being ignored. And the reason Paul writes this is to remind us of the intimacy of God, of what he's doing and what he's accomplishing. He's actually calling us all together into a moment of love and that a prayer and community is where God's presence is. Intimate, multidimensional God desires a relationship and a community with us. This is why one of the most important commandments in the Bible is recorded in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 40. says this, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Do you see what Jesus is doing in, this, in, this in these couple of verses here? He's not only teaching the greatest commandment and the second commandment. He's saying, look at the vastness of God. You are to love him with all of who you are because God is so complex and so big. Love him with all of who you are, your soul, your mind, your strength, with everything. But beyond that, there's an intimacy to God which requires you to now love your neighbor, which requires for you to partner with God by loving others around you. And we see earlier passage with Paul that I read in Corinthians is that we have problems, we have conflicts, we have hierarchies, we have selfishness. And God says, look at the vast complexity of who I am as a multidimensional God. Be in awe of that. Join me with all of who you are in your love for me. And now love your neighbors. Journey with them. Allow the Holy Spirit, the person of God, to work through you to love others. This is why we are creating things like the Holy Spirit Weekend. We want us to understand the complexities and the intimacy of God. We want us to engage with the work of God around us so we can love our neighbors well. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us know our neighbors' names? Like literal neighbors that live next to us. And when God, when, when the disciples ask, well, who's my neighbor? 
Jesus meant everybody. It didn't actually just mean locational neighbors. Holy Spirit's work is to engage us with complexity of God and into the intimacy of loving him and others around us. Paul says in, in the letter to the Romans in chapter 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The work of the Holy Spirit is to take all that complexity and dwell in us and remind us that we are God's children and we're a family. This is a relational dynamic as a reminder of this gift that was earned through the cross, this loving, self-giving presence of God that doesn't create hierarchies, doesn't create uh, separation for us, but breaks down any walls and bring us, brings us into intimate relationship. In just a few minutes, the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song of reflection. I think it's a good reminder for us when we look at the intimacy of God and who the Father is to say that he loves us deeply. He's more than just a good father. He's our daddy who loves us and wants to engage with us, who has done everything possible for us to enter into the presence of God. Today we're going to participate in communion. We practice at an open table. The song that's going to lead us is going to be a time of reflection. I want you to consider the vastness of God and the intimacy of God today. That this table here is for you to connect with him. If you have never done this before, but today maybe you want to begin that intimate relationship with God, this table is open for you. And it doesn't matter whether you think you are good enough or whatever you think about yourself. You are worth it because God went on the cross for you. So let's just take a moment to reflect how good our Father is. We practice an open table. We believe that we have a good Father. We have a Daddy who loves us so intimately that He's willing to die for us. That's our worth. We are loved. That's who we are. This table is for you. If you believe that Jesus loves you, if you're willing to enter that intimate relationship, participate. As the volunteers come forward to take the elements, we participate together. We don't do it individually. Does you receive the, the bread and the juice, just hold on to it for us to take it together. We remember that this is God who loves us so deeply and is his love for us. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this symbolizes my body, a material body limited in space and time for you that will be broken so that you can understand my love for you, how much you're worth to me. This is an act of intimacy that God instituted around a regular meal. So every time we partake in it, we remember Christ's death till he comes again. Would you eat with me? In the same way, he took the cup, saying that this cup represents my blood, blood of the new covenant, of the new promise, of all those promises for years on end are now being fulfilled through Jesus being limited in his body. And his blood will be shed so that you could have life, the perfect atonement, the perfect cleansing, and the breaker of the barriers between us and God. 
Do you drink this in remembrance of Christ? For whenever we gather and have a meal, we remember that yes, God is large and vast and complex, but he's intimate and loving and caring. And he wants his family, us, to love others well, to go from here in memory of him and what he's done, to love our neighbors. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this table. We thank you for the memory. We thank you for your goodness and your care for us. God, as we go from here, help us to love our neighbors well. Help us to know that you are at work in each person in this world. And you desire a deep relationship with us. And that we can plug into you. Plug into the source of life. That prayer gives us access to your presence. To your goodness. Be with us as we go from here. I praise in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. The common ground is open. Continue your meal together. Go in peace.